Warning, some deadheads may be triggered by this episode. Just kidding, here's an ad. What's up everybody, this is Jake Cook, host of the Don't Start a Band podcast, but more importantly, Jake Cook of the Backseaters, and I'm here to tell you that we just dropped our brand new EP called the Fortune Teller EP. It's four mostly brand new songs that are going to, uh, how do you say, rock your world. We got some slow songs, we got some faster songs. On this EP, you're going to understand why people call us indie rock, pop rock, pop punk. They try and put us into all these titles, but you know what? We just are the backseaters. That's what we are, and you can find the Fortune Teller EP on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, anywhere you go for music, you're going to find the Fortune Teller EP. Four new songs you're going to love. Make sure you check out the music video for Gypsy, and uh, yeah, go stream the shit out of this EP. Thanks. All right, we're back for another episode of the Don't Start a Band podcast. I guess technically this would be episode number three of the all-new Why Them segment. And today we're going to talk about the Grateful Dead, man. Uh, You know, I wanted to talk about the Grateful Dead because I thoroughly enjoy their music. And if you asked me a couple years ago... I would have referred to them as a guilty pleasure, as some people, um, you know, might refer to Taylor Swift or, uh, you know, somebody else like that as a guilty pleasure. But, uh, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about this since I started listening to The Grateful Dead, and I'm not... I, I don't consider it a guilty pleasure anymore. So uh, today we're going to talk about why people were so in love with them back then, why they're in love with them today, and everything that they did right to propel them into extreme popularity and some of the things that they did that bands and artists can apply today to help themselves along so let's get into it as some of you may have already guessed uh the history of the grateful dead is pretty extensive but i'm just going to go through the briefest of brief histories of the grateful dead um all the members were from northern california and uh you know played music through their childhoods. Some of the early incarnations of the Grateful Dead were the Uptown Jug Champion or Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, which is just uh, you know, a jug band. If you don't know what that is, definitely look it up. It's, you know, banjos, uh and yeah, I think they did the whole thing where you like blow onto a jug and makes that whole sound um but then when they started getting into more of the rock music arena um they changed their name to the warlocks started playing electric instruments and that's where they kind of 
solidified their main lineup of Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, Phil Lesh, Bill Kreutzman, and Ron Pigpen McKernan. Uh, and yeah, that was uh, that was the Warlocks. And then they found out that another band had that name, so they decided to change their name. And how did they come upon the Grateful Dead? Well, they were over at one of the members' houses, and Jerry Garcia just opened a dictionary, put his finger down on the page, and he landed on Grateful Dead, which I guess is... Uh, it's an old folk tale, and I I highly suggest looking it up. It's pretty interesting. A uh, guy happens upon a corpse, uh, you know, buries the corpse to kind of help the person out, and then the, uh, you know, the dead person comes back, helps the traveler on his quest, and kind of does this so that he can move on to the afterlife and i'm sure i butchered that a little bit but definitely look it up it's kind of a cool cool story but anyway 1965 they became the grateful dead and they uh you know they just started playing everywhere that they could uh touring every chance that they got and they eventually signed to warner brothers in uh I think it was either in 67 or 68 I can't remember um, probably should have looked that up but you know most of the important dates I did look up but anyway they signed to Warner Brothers they actually lost Warner Brothers a shitload of money because they experimented a lot in the recording studio which for bands and artists who have gone to a recording studio you know that it's best to go in there with the material already written like pretty much have an idea of how you want everything to sound and lay it down because you get charged by the hour and for mixes and mastering and all that shit so they uh they took their time and they experimented and um you know phil lesh said that uh, making studio albums is kind of like making an ad for your shows and they were never big fans of making studio recordings their bread and butter was playing live and playing shows and touring and doing that whole thing um, and then in 1970 they put out Working Man's Dead and American Beauty in the same year those albums had uh, you know, some of their first quote-unquote popular songs like Casey Jones, Uncle John's Band, uh, Friend of the Devil, Ripple, um, oh, and uh, Truckin'. American Beauty had Truckin' on it, and that is, you know... I bet one out of every 10 people, you go up to them and you go, oh, have you ever heard the song Truckin'? And they just start going, Truckin'. <clears throat> anyway, so they put those albums out in 1970 and started getting a little notoriety. And they started being able to pay back Warner Brothers um, for their extensive studio costs those were also the first albums where they had the material written they went in 
they did their fucking job and they got out but they were also you know pretty simple uh folk albums you know they weren't there weren't extensive guitar solos and this that and the other thing sound effects yada 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 it was just guys with uh guitars drums and they like to attribute their work on their harmonies to crosby stills and nash who were also recording at wally hyder's in uh i think it was i'm pretty sure it was in san francisco um but they were all recording at the same studio and they like to uh you know give props to crosby stills and nash for inspiring their harmonies but then yes david crosby and they're like they figured that shit out on their own so uh who knows what the real story is but yeah they started getting a little more notoriety um and then just kept touring and in 1972 they did their first like big european tour which they recorded a full like live double album um as another way to pay back warner brothers and that is one of my favorite live albums but we'll get to that they took a break in 1974 uh it wasn't totally a break because they still like kind of played together recorded an album but really reunited in 1976 and then from there just kept making their subpar studio albums and going on their tours um a lot of people like to say that may 77 is the best string of shows that the grateful dead ever played uh one of the more popular shows was at a little place called cornell and if you mention cornell 77 to a deadhead they'll know exactly what you mean uh, but yeah, they just kept on touring, kept making their albums, and then in June of 1987, they put out Touch of Grey, which was their first big hit single. And, uh, you know, around that time, MTV was out. They made a video for it. It's a very catchy song, um, and it got radio play, and it got out there. And that's what really shot the Grateful Dead into the stratosphere started bringing you know all the chads and all the people who may not have gone to a grateful dead show before because it you know despite what some people might think before their album in the dark which had touch of gray on it came out they were still kind of a niche band or like a uh uh you know a lingering band from the 60s uh but yeah they put out touch of gray changed the game and they started you know playing huge stadiums tons of shows and basically kept touring uh to keep try trying to make money because the thing about it is their their production cost them money but they were also paying some of their crew members like six figures a year you know money was going out so they had to keep touring to keep the keep the train on the tracks um so yeah game change and then uh jerry garcia dies in august of 1995 and the grateful dead as everybody knew it was pretty much uh closed the shop was closed um you know different art incarnations of the grateful dead 
uh, are still around, but continued to tour kind of after Jerry Garcia died. You had the dead, um, like they just went by the dead. You have dead and company now, um, you know, just different incarnations. But yeah, that basically sums up the history of the Grateful Dead, you know, from 65 to 95, a, a good 30 years of making music, touring, and, uh, you know, kind of changing the world and influencing the counterculture and inspiring people to start playing music, picking up instruments, and start jamming, man. Um, you know, to start on, uh, you know, some of the positive things about them, uh, all the members just loved music. They had a passion for music, whether it was Jerry Garcia and his love for bluegrass music and eventually rock music and all different kinds of music. He also loved, uh, well, okay, that's wrong. He didn't love jazz until a little bit later. Um, but then you had Phil Lesh, who was, as Jerry Garcia says, a uh, lunatic composer. You have Bill Kreutzman, who was, I mean, if you read or listen to his book, he was obsessed with drums and percussion. Like, everything about it and every, you know, he just loved the drums. And then you have uh, Pigpen, who was their kind of their front man in the beginning and stuff and that that dude just loved the blues he loved singing it he loved listening to it so i mean you had this group of guys that just genuinely loved music and with them because they loved music so much uh that translated to loving to play it so not only did they practice themselves but they would also practice together all the time, every day. And at different points in the Grateful Dead history, they were actually living together. So that made it easy for everybody to get together and to have a band practice and to just kind of jam out. Um, but yeah, they, they practiced every day and they took every opportunity that came their way um, as far as shows and in the 60s they hooked up with a guy named Ken Kesey who wrote a book called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and he was uh, if I remember correctly uh, one of one of many test subjects uh, for LSD back in the 60s when the United States was trying to uh, you know, kind of militarize it and find out how they can weaponize LSD to do some sort of mind control on the enemy. Um, so yeah, Ken Kesey was one of their test subjects and uh, I believe it was Ken Kesey who said that LSD is proof that God has a sense of humor. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's the one that said that. Uh, if I'm wrong, you should leave a comment and tell me how wrong I am. Um, but anyway, Ken Kesey does acid, starts this little group called the the Merry Pranksters, which was basically just like a, a group of hippies that traveled around on this old 1940s bus 
and they used to put on these little events called the asset test where basically people would show up they pay a dollar to get in the door and then they get a little cup of kool-aid that had the uh lyosurgic dimethyl blah 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 lsd acid they get a little cup of it drink it and then they get fucked up and uh they would expand their consciousness as some people like to say uh but anyway in having these acid tests getting hooked up with ken kesey he asked the grateful dead to play at some of the acid tests because people who are tripping on acid enjoy music and you know it'd be cool to have a live band playing and this was very important to the grateful dead's uh, development because not only were they doing the acid quote unquote expanding their consciousness and uh, you know kind of learning how to jam but one of the big things that they always talk about is you know if they showed up and they were a little fucked up like they didn't have to pay uh, play I don't think they got paid at all um, but you know if they weren't feeling it they didn't have to play and when they did play they could play as long as they want and uh you know by playing together and uh improvising and jamming they learned how to be more of a cohesive unit and anybody who's practiced or jammed with other people if you do it continuously and uh, you know, really work hard at it, you can sync up with people. And that's one thing that, like, David and I, uh, drums in the backseaters, when him and I started playing music together, you know, it was a little rocky, feeling each other out. And then uh, definitely when the backseaters was a two-piece for a little while and it was just David and I, we were practicing two times a week, uh, him and I got locked in like he he could hear you know when I was going from uh, you know one phrase to the next phrase and uh, you know all that kinds of stuff so when you're doing acid you're playing together all the time and you're vibing you can get pretty synced up and you can definitely explore music in that way which I know to a lot of people and to myself circa uh, five years ago that that sounds like a bit much you know the whole jamming and soloing thing but the thing about it is you know when you think guitar solo you think like shredding but it was a lot more tasteful than that it was more so just like a like they were playing complex instrumentals, you know, it wasn't wasn't shredding, it wasn't a hey look at me type thing. It was just a band that was locked in and uh, you know, having a good time and they got to play these acid tests all the time and um, through the acid tests they also got hooked up with a guy named Owsley Stanley uh, who is referred to as the bear and he was the guy making all the acid. He was the quote-unquote chemist, alchemist of the group. And through 
making the acid and making money for the acid, he actually paid for a lot of the Grateful Dead's gear and, you know, kind of paid their way because these guys, you know, they were part of the counterculture. They were living in Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco. Like, they didn't want to have a standard job and a standard life. And, uh, you know, honestly, if it wasn't for the bear, they probably would have had a much harder time, you know, figuring it out. But uh, Jerry Garcia said that they used to play out six nights a week. And even if you set the acid tests aside, if you're going out and playing six nights a week, you're going to get pretty fucking tight. And people like to listen to bands that are tight. And at the time, they were playing rock music. They were playing the music that people wanted to hear. And, you know, all these things coming together made them the tight live band that they were. And I think that's why they loved playing live more than making studio albums because it was an experience. They were giving something to the audience and they were getting, you know, a direct connection back from the audience. Whereas you put out an album and it's just kind of like out there, you know, and you get reviews and people can come to the shows and tell you how much they like your album. But, uh, you know, they loved that environment of playing shows. Um, you know, and what they what they did right that can be applicable today is they had that self-awareness. They knew that they weren't too terribly uh, good at being studio musicians, but they knew that they were a good live band. So they made sure to do a shit ton of touring. And while I'm sure they worked very hard on their studio albums, um, they didn't put as much into them as they put into their importance on touring and playing live. And so I, I think that was a, a big thing for them, having that self-awareness, because, uh, yeah, I mean... Bands just got to know what they're good at and they got to kind of lean into that, you know, and it helps if the thing you're good at is the thing you enjoy. But if you want to be successful, you kind of got to be aware of, okay, if I do this, it works. If I do this, like it's, uh, it's okay, but like I should probably do the thing that works. Um, and they were open to all opportunities that came their way, whether it was the acid test, whether they were playing at Magoo's Pizza Parlor, or uh, which was an actual venue that they played at when they were the Warlocks. Anyway, um, but they were open to all opportunities, and that's you know how they got put on Woodstock and the Monterey Pop Festival, which funny little story about that for people who don't know they hated their performances so much at monterey and at woodstock that they didn't sign the release form to uh you know release the footage to the public because they thought they played so bad which you know every band has bad shows but woodstock they can't really be held a hundred percent responsible for that because as most people know, Woodstock was kind of a shit show. I mean, there was shit weather. There was half a million people there. 
kind of a rinky-dink stage and the night that the Grateful Dead played well and the whole schedule was fucked up I mean bands were playing like way past when they were supposed to play um the whole thing was a shit show but the night that they were supposed to play it was actually raining and there was thunder and lightning and there was a bunch of exposed cables and apparently uh you know some people who saw the Grateful Dead saw Bob Weir when he would go up to the microphone to sing it would shock the shit out of him and he kind of jumped back and uh you know made it look like a performance but at the end of the day you know they were not only fighting mother nature but they were just fighting shit circumstances um and then I think at Monterey Pop Festival they just thought they played like shit but yeah, they took every opportunity that came their way. And I feel like that, um, you know, in some circles it gets emphasized a lot. And in other circles, people say that you should only play shows every so often because, you know, then your fans don't get bored of your shit. But I think the Grateful Dead was a little more unique in that respect because they did, you know, do the jamming and expanding of certain parts of the songs so um you know and that really uh was significant later in their career and that's why they were able to sell out three days in a row because people would you know some people would buy tickets to let's say the second night and they'd show up and they'd be walking around the venue and they'd start talking to other people uh who would say were you at the first night? And they'd be like, no, I only bought tickets to the second night. And they'd be like, man, the jams in the first night. Or, you know, someone coming on the third night missed day one and two. Um, so, you know, that that worked uh, for their benefit because people would end up buying tickets to all three shows, you know, because they didn't want to miss the good show. But going back to what I was saying, they could take every opportunity and they could play six nights a week because every show was different. And I think that's really cool and that's something I try to do, you know what I mean? Like, I don't like to play the same exact show every time. Like, we might have a set, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll change it up. And I've gotten better at expanding a bridge or you know noodling around a little bit but yeah making every show different definitely worked out for them and you know they were they were fucking determined you know um things things were a little rough at a bunch of points in their career and even in the beginning you know it's not something that picked picked up and took off super quick i mean it was a gradual gradual process until 1987 when they put out touch of gray uh you know they they grew very steadily and and you know if you didn't have the passion you weren't determined uh you know some people might have just fell off and gave up on it but these guys were determined and they had the passion for it and they loved it and they kept going and Jerry Garcia's whole thing that they talk a lot about in uh, the documentary Long Strange Trip was 
the one thing Jerry Garcia always talked about was, is it fun? Are we having fun? Fun, fun, fun. Like, all he wanted to do was have fun. That was the most important thing, and playing music for him was fun. So half determination, half passion, half fun. Or I guess that's that's three halves. So, you know, 1.5, And another, you know, Jerry Garcia quote was, uh, we don't want to be the best at what we do. We want to be the only ones doing what we do, which, you know, translates to they wanted to be unique. They wanted to be their own band. And, you know, that was the right thing for them because back in the day and even today, uh, a lot of people see a successful artist and they go, okay, that's the music we have to make. That's what we have to do. That's how we're going to be successful. But the Grateful Dead just played the music, made the music they wanted to make and went about it the way they wanted to go about it. And they really didn't like following the mold that was already set in the music industry for bands. Uh, They basically wanted to do it their own way, and that's why they paid their crew so much, and that's why they invested so much time and money into building uh, their sound system back in the 70s. It was called the Wall of Sound. And uh, definitely Google the Wall of Sound because it is fascinating just how ginormous that sound system was and uh, it revolutionized venues live sound um, but yeah they they went about things the way they wanted to go about it and I think that's why they were so popular is because people um, you know people can sense when something's genuine when something's when a band or artist is doing exactly what they want to do and what they love, like people feed off of that. People can smell when something is uh, contrived, I think might be the right word. You know, when someone's faking it to make it, you know, and that's why uh, The Grateful Dead was popular because they did what they wanted to do and mad props to them for not caving in, you know, when they got to 70s and they played a little, uh, you know, some disco-y drum beats and had some disco-y songs, but they didn't go full disco. And when they got to the 80s, they didn't go, you know, full big 80s arena rock. Um, You know, they were just the Grateful Dead and they did their own thing. but yeah, their music was fueled by Im- improvisation. It was all about being in the moment and uh, going with the flow, for lack of a better phrase. You know, it wasn't about writing hit songs and, uh, you know, trying to appeal to everybody and. I know I've already said it a thousand times already, but they made the music they wanted to make, and they were big proponents of uh, of improvisation. And uh, a lot of them really loved jazz, and I think that kind of translated to what the Grateful Dead was because, uh, you know, jazz is sort of niche 
just as the Grateful Dead was. Um, but that improvisation, I think, is really a really big thing because it made people be able to vibe out, you know, just normal people who didn't even play music. They got to just vibe out to it. And then people who were musicians were able to appreciate, like, everything that was going on in those jams, you know? And honestly, uh, it can't really be super applicable today. I guess you can, like, find little ways to make it applicable somehow. But basically, the Grateful Dead hit at the right time, you know? They were around in San Francisco during the Summer of Love, and they were playing outdoor free shows all the fucking time. You know, they were around for Woodstock and Monterey Pop, and they were a part of the counterculture. They were a part of the people who looked at America the way it was and said, that's not for me. The two kids, white picket fence, you know, that's that's not what it's all about. And that's, you know, expanding consciousness is a very uh, uh, unnerving term for a lot of people because they go, you fucking hippie. You're not expanding your consciousness. You're just getting fucked up. But the thing is, for anybody who has never done, you know, uh, psychedelic substances, uh, the thing about it is, you know, and I've, you know, obviously I've smoked weed, um, but I've done mushrooms. And the thing about it is when you do mushrooms, it's kind of like you've been traveling through this tunnel your whole life. And then all of a sudden you do mushrooms and you come out of the tunnel and you're like, what the fuck? Where was all of this before? And you kind of, you're able to look back at the tunnel and you're able to reflect on, you know, your, the way you kind of broke things down in your mind and the way you kind of went about your life. Like it, it's a very self-reflective, um, tool, I guess, if you want to put it that way. But, uh, yeah, and acid 10 times more intense than, uh, especially back then, because they had the pure 1960s counterculture acid. You know, they were all, uh, in a sense, waking up and kind of seeing America and the world for what it is. And they had, you know, something like the Vietnam War going on to where they were able to look at that and see how fucked up that was and how they were drafting people to go over there for a war that didn't make sense to most of the people. You know, it, in World War One and Two, uh, you know, people were pro-America and pro-fighting the bad guys. But the thing about Vietnam and there, there wasn't really like that... There wasn't a fucking Hitler for Vietnam, you know what I mean? It wasn't like a team going out there. It was just kind of like, you know, all these kids in the counterculture, their friends were getting drafted and they were going to Vietnam for a war that didn't make sense to them and that they didn't support and their friends were going and dying. And, you know, doing the acid, they were able to kind of open their minds, whereas, you know, their parents before them and people before them weren't 
didn't really do. Um, but they were able to open their minds to the world and America and everything that was going on. And, uh, you know, the Grateful Dead's music is kind of, kind of a metaphor for, uh, what acid did to the counterculture because you had bands like the Beatles in the 1950s and 60s, and you had, uh, you know, short, poppy, catchy songs. And, you know, you do acid and you start jamming, you're going to come out with fucking 12 minute, 18 minute songs. Um, but yeah, they were able to kind of look at rock music and go, you know, who's making these rules, man? Why do we got to play it like that, man? And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's probably why, you know, the counterculture and people doing acid were able to relate so well to what the Grateful Dead was doing because, you know, they, they didn't support a lot of the things that the, uh, you know, official government America was doing, but they believed in America and American music. And, you know, people, there wouldn't have been a counterculture and there wouldn't have been people who were so upset about everything if they didn't want the best for their country and the people in their country. You know what I mean? If it was all falling to shit and they didn't care about it, they'd just go, oh, that kind of sucks. But, like, you know, you had the civil rights movement and all these things going on and people people were speaking up and, uh, you know, coming together. And, like I said, they were going, you know, this shit isn't right and we're going to fix it, whether that means, uh, you know, protesting or making certain types of music. Uh, you know, this that 1940s 1950s world isn't going to be the world anymore and we're going to fucking make sure of it so i uh yeah this is all it's kind of crazy this is all kind of a revelation that i'm having right now in this moment and i'm kind of uh proud of myself i think i hit on something really big with the whole idea of you know the asset expanding the consciousness and the the freedom and the openness and the new ideas and new perspectives and how that lined up you know parallel with the grateful dead and what they were doing um and then the last thing i have on that list is just their fucking iconic logo like people who uh you know, even people who have never heard of the Grateful Dead, you show them that skull with the lightning bolt in the head and they go, oh, yeah, I've seen that a million fucking times. It's on bumpers. It's on, you know, back windows. It's on T-shirts, a lot of tie-dye T-shirts. But everybody has seen that fucking logo. And the funny thing about it is, you know, they weren't really trying to come up with a logo per se it was more so developed because they would go and play all these festivals and all the band's cases and gear would be backstage and they'd all be in the same black cases and nobody could differentiate their shit from other people's shit so they came up with this logo to put on all their shit so that they could 
see it, dig it out, and get the fuck out of there. Um, and then it, <clears throat> you know, just became this iconic thing that you fucking see everywhere. That skull with the lightning bolt through it, and there's a whole meaning uh, underneath the uh, skull with the lightning bolt. I think the lightning bolt has like 13 points on it, which relates to some alchemical uh, occult thing that uh, Owsley Stanley was into, the bear. And that dude was kind of the inspiration for the bear logos. Again, people have seen the dancing bear logos. They all, you know, they're looking sideways and they got one leg up and they got their arms out. Everybody's seen that fucking logo. So that's another thing that they did right that can be applicable today. You know, you get an iconic logo like the Grateful Dead or like Blink-182 had the bunny and then they had the smiley face with the arrows. Uh, you have Nine Inch Nail with the uh, N, I, and then backwards N. Uh, I mean, the list just goes on with iconic logos. And if you can come up with something like that, that it's a logo for your band, but also can be something that, uh, you know, people just want to wear the T-shirt. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure there's people who aren't huge Grateful Dead fans, but they think a tie-dye shirt with that logo looks fucking sick. You know what I mean? So if you can come up with a logo, you don't have to put the band's name across it, but like the people who know, know. And the people who don't know, just like the shirt and you still make money. So having an iconic logo is a very, uh, very good business decision, you know? And now I kind of want to change topics a little bit. First, I want to apologize. I know I was kind of rambling there a little bit but that's that's the thing about this podcast and I know a lot of podcasts uh you're kind of thinking out loud and I know me especially I think out loud I just gotta talk and talk and talk and then I come up with something and that's how I kind of came to the conclusion about the whole acid counterculture grateful dead connection uh yeah so If that was kind of droning and whatnot, I apologize. But if you're still listening, thank you so much. Uh, But I want to kind of switch topics and talk about why, what was it about the Grateful Dead that made people love them so much, that made people follow them on tour, that, uh, you know, made them sign up for some of the first mailing lists and do all this shit. And, uh, you know, a big part of that was the community. You know, people would follow them on tour or people would go and see them three nights in a row in their city or just go, you know, every time they came to their city. And the thing about it is, you you know, you go to the show and there's tons of people there who are all there for the same reason. And... You know, after going to a Dead and Company show, you can kind of feel that with most of the people there. Like, they are all there for the simple reason that they love the Grateful Dead's music. And they're there to celebrate the music and the culture. And, you know, that's, 
I don't know if it's because I grew up going to pop punk and hardcore shows and warp tour or you know what the deal is but going to that show people were so fucking cool you know you're trying to get to your seat and you're squeezing past everybody and like they're super cool about like moving out of your way and everyone's super you know polite they're in a good mood and are some of their you know fans on drugs every single show absolutely but they're nice so you know if they're smoking a little grass dropping a little acid eating some fungi who gives a shit they're being fucking nice they're dancing they're having a good time they're not fucking hurting anybody you know so uh you know and if they're smoking weed eating mushrooms they're not hurting anybody or themselves you know they're just having a good time they're vibing out and uh you know they're making the world a slightly better place at least for a couple hours because you know i left that show and i felt like oh okay so you know you have those little blips on your radar in your life those little moments where you go whoo i thought people were fucking all turning to shit but uh you know maybe i was wrong maybe maybe we have a little bit more time Maybe, you know, maybe we all can be nicer to each other and maybe we all can start treating each other better. And that's that's a sense you get at that show. And I know that it's a hippy-dippy idea and people are like, shut the fuck up. Uh, you know, because living day-to-day, driving in traffic, uh, working retail, whatever it is that you do, you're experiencing shitty people all the time. But... Like I said, the thing about going to that show was there's a sense of community and a sense that, like, we're all here because we love the music and we're here to vibe out and, uh, you know, just have a good time. And, you know, I I have a friend who shall rename, remain, sorry, shall remain nameless, uh, because he wants to remain nameless, not because I care. Um, but <laughs> he's one of the biggest Grateful Dead fans I know, but he's also uh, one of the biggest ICP fans <laughs> I know. Um, I, don't, I don't know a lot of Insane Clown Posse fans, uh, but I know this dude, and he knows a lot about them and their music. And... Uh, you know, I I think one similarity between those two uh, fan groups is you have these people that just don't uh, they don't feel like they belong in normal society, doing normal shit, working nine to five at a normal desk job in a cubicle, and going to happy hour on Friday night and mowing the lawn every. Saturday and yada 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 the list goes on and on and on so they find this group of people who a enjoy the same music as as them and b have you know a good attitude and they're they welcome uh you know everybody to those shows and into that community you know I was I'm not gonna lie I was a little worried going to the dead and company show because I was like Man, 
somebody's gonna fucking point me out they're gonna spot me uh and they're gonna call me out for being a poser you know because i was there i was wearing my black skinny jeans uh you know i i looked like jake cook from the backseaters who has looked the exact same for over a decade now you know and uh i thought for sure they were gonna sniff me out and that i was gonna get dirty looks and people were gonna be like that guy's not one of us man he's not one of us but i didn't get that at all like people were super cool didn't seem like anybody was judging anybody and from what i've been told from my buddy uh juggalos are kind of the same way you know if you're there that means you enjoy the music enough to go to a show buy the merch paint your face whatever um and you know they're down for that so the community is a big thing and uh one cool thing about the grateful dead dead and company is the uh the parking lot scene out shot up i can't fucking talk today um outside of the show well okay i can talk my brain's just moving 10 times faster than my fucking mouth um but the parking lot scene also known as shakedown street which is the title of one of their songs they kind of renamed the parking lot scene after uh that song but basically it's kind of like uh for anybody who's been to warp tour all the tents with all the merch um and everything they got going on the thing about the parking lot scene and shakedown street though is that uh it's a lot of homemade shit. A lot of homemade tie-dyed shirts, Grateful Dead merch. Um, but I mean, there's there's some cool things too, like a vegan burrito vendor. Um, I think there was like a CBD company. Uh, but yeah, it's again, it adds to that community. It's people who are there because they love the music and they feel that they have something to contribute to this uh you know community group of people whether it's their vegan burritos or their hemp necklaces uh one funny little anecdote from the show (laughs) is uh you know i was we were walking um through the crowd and there was somebody who they just had this little cardboard sign and it just said dmt question mark and i just remember laughing so hard at it um and i mean you know it's not that funny but i was laughing super hard and i was just thinking are they asking for dmt are they like does anybody have dmt or is it more like does anybody want dmt um but yeah it's just i mean in the collection of people that was there i mean you had people looking like me and it was at uh, Folsom Field in Boulder at, uh, I think it's CU's, like, football stadium. And so you had people looking like me. You had some college chads that were there. And then you had all the people that you would expect to find at a, uh, at a dead show, you know. Uh, a lot of patchouli, a little bit of body odor. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, most people, they think of a Grateful Dead show and they go, Eef. you know, uh, but it's definitely something like 
if you even like the Grateful Dead just a little bit, it's an experience for sure, you know? And uh, I thought they played pretty well. They played some song, you know, they have an extensive catalog. So the fact that they played some songs that I knew was pretty tight. Um, But yeah, it was just, it was an experience, you know what I mean? And kind of going off the community aspect. um, And again, this is going to sound super hippy dippy but i think another reason people love them was because they would be tripping on acid mushrooms uh you know what have you at their shows and and this is where i get a little deep the grateful dead when they would go into their jams and even in their you know the regular forms of the songs they would paint like a musical landscape for the people who are there you know you could feel the vibrations and like i've said i've never done acid so i've never gotten the crazy ass visuals but i can imagine it just like when you're ingesting a life-changing substance such as acid and then you have this music and this uh, you know, colorful, beautiful, musical landscape being painted for you. Like, it's going to change your life. And maybe some people, you know what I mean, they uh, they go with their friend to a dead show, they take acid, they have a wonderful time, then they become a fan because they hear the music and it brings them right back to that moment. And, uh, yeah, I think that definitely... Uh, is a bigger reason that a lot of people love them and you know why they kind of hit perfectly at the time that they did you know acid was coming out it was part of the counterculture like i said they were jamming and it all just it kind of clicked you know and uh worked out very well for them and uh you know the the thing about people tripping and listening to the music and the musical landscapes um you know because they all were into jazz and they were are phenomenal musicians you know they were able to have the dynamics of a good band and that's one thing that i've always prided myself on with my songs is dynamics having parts that get super fucking quiet and then just explode back in and you know if you can if someone's vibing out and you can play super quietly and you can make it poetic and just kind of vibey like someone can just kind of travel down that yellow brick road and then you know just come in with a straight fucking bass bomb after that and then it just your mind just explodes And that's why people love the Grateful Dead. (laughs) Uh, But another reason people love them was, uh, you know, again, they toured constantly. And people love going to shows. Most people love going to shows. And when you love a band so much, you're going to want to go and see them live. And a very smart slash cool slash semi-accidental thing they did is they let people tape their shows. Um, you know, at first mobile recording equipment was just starting to take off and people would just show up and start taping the shows and their record company was like, 
hey, uh, what the fuck? People are like, they're like stealing your music. And the thing is, is like people weren't stealing their studio recording albums. Like they were just taping the shows and a big thing that they talked about and that Jerry Garcia kind of said was that, you know, they, they go on stage, let's just hypothetically say, you know, they played Red Rocks in 1978. That's not hypothetical, but anyway, they play Red Rocks in 1978 and they play those couple nights and then they move on to the next city and the thing about it is the shows are all different the jams are different and you know there's definitely been shows that i've been to where i go fuck i just want to relive that or i wish i could hear that song the exact way i heard it and jerry garcia's philosophy was we played it and we put it out there and it's no longer ours like we gave it to the people and if they want to record it and listen to it over and over and over again, let them have it, you know? And that was their thing is they were like, we don't want to be cops. So might as well just let let the people tape it. And, uh, you know, that added to the whole community thing because people would go to the shows and they'd tape them. And then they'd have a tape from July 5th, 1978. And then... You know, they'd really like the Scarlet Begonias on that. But then somebody else would have a tape from Buffalo, Buffalo, New York on that same tour. And uh, blah, blah, blah. You, You get what I'm saying, okay? Like, I could go into this hypothetical scenario like super fucking deep that won't make sense to half the people listening to this. But the tape trading expanded the community, you know what I mean? Because let's say you go to that Red Rock show in 1978, it's your first dead show, and, you know, they, let's say they, you, you thoroughly enjoyed it, but they played Scarlet Begonias, and you were like, eh, it was pretty good, but then you trade tapes with somebody, and they have a tape from the show in Buffalo, and you're like, holy shit that song can sound like that and so it just kind of you know they get like addicted to it and they want to find the best versions and their favorite versions of everything and there's i mean people who have tapes on tapes on tapes on tapes even al franken who was um i believe he was on snl and then he was a senator for a while uh super big deadhead shit ton of tapes and, uh, you know, all these people, they just get obsessed with finding their favorite version and saying, oh, this, night two was better than night one or 78 was a way better year for this song than 79. Or like I said, the hypothetical scenarios can go fucking deep, but the tape trading expanded the community because, I mean, again, let's say uh you link up with somebody who maybe the grateful dead doesn't come to their city like you go to see your cousin in uh you know bum fuck ohio and uh you give him a tape of the show and then he becomes a fan and then he decides he wants to travel to the next show that's closest to him and it it was just uh 
you know, an accidental genius way of marketing when basically they just didn't want to be cops. They didn't want to ruin people's time. They didn't want to tell people to stop taping. So they were like, ah, fuck it, let them tape. And it was kind of a genius marketing uh, move because it just, they had all these shows, all this music just blasting out into the fucking world and being traded and cycling around and, uh, you know, it worked, worked out well for them because people could, you know, relive an amazing experience or, uh, be able to listen to a show that maybe they missed, but then that was their way of still being a part of it, you know? And, uh, you know, the last thing I'm going to say about why, people loved them then and why they still love them now is the Grateful Dead symbolized love and freedom and death in a way if you listen to their lyrics but right now we're just going to talk about the good stuff the love and the freedom and I've already kind of touched on it with the jazz and the improvisation and you know the whole San Francisco hate Ashbury scene um, but the world is a weird and tricky place, you know, with all of its conflicts and polarization and this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, we all need some sort of escape or it's healthy to have a little bit of an escape whether that's going to a dead show or whether that's just putting on their music and getting sucked into that moment, you know, it kind of takes you out of all the fucked up shit in the world. Not saying that the world is fucked up and everything's terrible and meh, but they just kind of, they give you that relief and they show you through their improvisation that freedom and the way that they were able to turn their passion into a career and, you know, a lifelong career at that and uh, just doing exactly what they wanted. And that's super inspirational. I I know it is to me and, uh, you know, it kind of gives me a sigh of relief when I'm looking at the standard formula for pop music and, you know, uh, being successful in music. And then you look at the Grateful Dead who came out around the time of, you know, the Beatles, the Birds, all those bands who were making short pop songs. And you go, oh, okay, well, maybe it's a cycle or maybe I just got to keep doing what's right for me and playing the music that I love because... I was actually thinking about that the other day. Um, Funny enough, I was in the shower and I was just thinking about music and my songs and writing songs in general. And the thing that pops into my mind every time I'm writing a song is if this is the hit, if this is the song that launches my music career or the backseaters into the stratosphere, am I going to want to play this song every single night for the rest of my life? 
because I can tell you right now, Blink-182 does not enjoy playing all the small things every fucking night. But at the end of the day, they have to. That's the hit. That's the one song people show up to hear them play that song. Or, you know, I'm sure there were people going to see Oasis back in the day who just wanted to hear Wonderwall. And Liam Gallagher wasn't a huge fan of doing Wonderwall. I think it's because he kind of sucked with timing and shit. Um, And it's an acoustic song and whatnot. But anyway, I think about that with every song I write. If this is the hit, am I going to want to play this every single night for the rest of my life? And with The Grateful Dead, I think they genuinely enjoyed a high percentage of all the music that they made. And that's why... They were able to play songs like uh, St. Stephen and uh, Birdsong, Uncle John's band Ripple. They were able to play these songs for decades because they made the music they wanted to make. They didn't just make a song that had a formula to appeal to people. You know, they, they, for lack of a better phrase, they followed their heart. And they made the music they wanted to make. And that makes playing shows and playing live ten times more enjoyable. And, uh, you know, like I said, people can tell when you're being genuine. And if you go to see a band and you can feel that they love what they're doing and they're having a good time, that makes you have a good time. You know what I mean? If you go to see a band and you could tell they're just going through the motions trying to get a paycheck, like you can feel that. And you walk out of that show and somebody goes, oh, it was a show. And you go, eh, it was meh. Like they played the songs. You know, I've, I've gone to see bands and you're like, yeah, they played their songs and they played them exactly like the album, but you you don't feel that sense of I'm up here doing what I love. And that's one thing that I can honestly say uh, I try and do it every single one of my shows, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what the circumstances are. I get up there and I go... I am fucking lucky that A, I have the guts to get up and perform in front of people, but B, that I get this opportunity to get up here and perform for people. You know what I mean? Like big show, small show, it's it's a blessing to have those opportunities. And I think the Grateful Dead understood that. And that's why they accepted all the opportunities that came their way, you know, whether it was Woodstock or having a Ben and Jerry's ice cream flavor named after their head guy, Jerry Gar or uh, Cherry Garcia is the ice cream flavor for any of you who couldn't draw that connection before. But uh, yeah, they loved what they did, and um, you know, people loved seeing them live, and that's that's why people followed them on tour and. Uh, I guess the last thing I'm going to say about why people love them is because all the shows were different and there were some people who wanted to see them every night, they would follow them on tour. And it was an adventure, it was an experience, and it was like uh, 
you know, it was like a smaller scale version of I'm going to go backpacking in Europe or whatever. It was just, you know, these kids or these people who would leave home and they would follow the Grateful Dead all around America and they would meet all the deadheads in every single city and their car would break down in the middle of Salt Lake City and they'd have to go wait at a repair shop and they'd meet up with some other deadheads who were on their way to the next show and like it was just they had a sense of adventure within the band but also created that sense of uh, freedom and adventure within the fans and uh, you know I'm sure a lot of those people that followed them on tour look back and say that was one of the best summers of my life or one of one of the best experiences I ever had you know um so yeah I think that that pretty much uh sorry about my phone going off I think that pretty much sums up you know why people loved them Uh, I'm sure there's a million other reasons that I missed or uh you know glossed over but uh Yeah, now I kind of want to talk about why I love them. And a funny thing I just realized is, uh, you know, the way I'm talking about the Grateful Dead kind of embodies the Grateful Dead. They were all about improvisation. And, uh, you know, I guess for the same reason that some people might not like the Grateful Dead, they might not like this podcast because I'm riffing a little bit. Um, but the thing is with like these why them episodes is, uh, you know, I make notes, I write down some facts, some ideas that I have, but ultimately it's, it's just me sitting here talking into a microphone and that's a weird fucking thing, right? Cause I'm just sitting by myself and I'm talking as if I'm having a conversation and I kind of. I got to get into that vibe. I got to get into the flow of having this one man conversation. And I think the subconscious thing that probably helps me through this is when I go, you know what I mean? And hopefully there's some people listening who go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Or they're, you know, they're listening to it as if you're talking to that one friend who just talks and talks and talks and talks and doesn't let you get a word in, but you're enjoying everything he's saying. Uh, But yeah, like I said, some people might not like this episode for the same reason they don't like The Grateful Dead. And it's because it's uh, slightly improvised. There's a form, but ultimately we're just riffing. Um, But yeah, why I love The Grateful Dead... Uh, the thing that turned me on to the Grateful Dead is I love documentaries. I just love watching documentaries, even for bands and artists that I don't particularly, wow, particularly enjoy, uh, like the Foo Fighters. I fucking love their documentary back and forth. But I just, their music doesn't hit the right spots in my brain. Um, I'm trying to think, or like David Crosby's documentary. I watched that recently, um, and I like his vibe. I love the documentary, but his music uh, just doesn't doesn't 100% do it for me. Mad respect for him and his career, 
But uh, yeah, I just don't feel his music when I listen to it, and it doesn't make me want to listen to it all the time. But anyway, the thing that got me into it is I watched Bob Weir's Netflix documentary. It's called The Other One. And, uh, you know, because at the time, I was like, ugh, they're Grateful Dead. Fucking hippies and deadheads and patchouli and a bunch of fucking hippies. You know, I was, I can say that I was ignorant to the Grateful Dead, what they are, what they stood for, what their music was. I had never, I'd never heard a single note of the Grateful Dead, but I didn't like them because I had this aversion to hippies and hippie culture for whatever fucking reason. Um, I can say that I was ignorant to the Grateful Dead. And I saw that documentary on there, and I was like, okay, let's watch it. Sure. It's one of the guitar players from the Grateful Dead. And it was a phenomenal documentary, you know. It talked about uh, Bob Weir and the history of the Grateful Dead and uh, everything he's done since Jerry Garcia died. Um, You know, he talked about his different... uh, Bands like uh, I think his band right now is called Rat Dog, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was just it was a cool documentary. You know, it wasn't super long, and uh, you know, I thought it was thought it was kind of cool. Thought it was interesting, um, and I think at that time I was starting to like I was just weirdly starting to get interested in the 60s 70s like something about it i don't know there was just like something was coming on you know and uh it's kind of like when you're in a shitty mood the day before you like really come down with a cold like i've noticed uh you know i'll wake up one morning i'll feel like shit i'll be sick and then i'll think about the day before and i'll be like oh that's why i was a fucking dickhead yesterday um But yeah, watched that documentary, uh, worked with a guy, the same guy who likes ICP. I worked with him and, uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, I watched the documentary. It was, it was pretty good, you know, whatever. Still not a fan of the Grateful Dead. I just like documentaries. And he suggested that I watch Long Strange Trip, which is the, uh, part uh, like six episode documentary on the Grateful Dead. It's on Prime. Again, highly suggest you check it out. Even if you're not a Grateful Dead fan, it's a phenomenal documentary. Uh, Amir Barlev is the the producer of it and kind of made the whole thing. But it's a phenomenal documentary. It goes through the history of the Grateful Dead. It goes through, you know, the deadhead culture. One of my favorite things, little side note from the documentary, is when they talk about the shows and the different zones at the show, whether you're a Phil Lesh fan or you're one of the tapers, they had a whole section for people who were deaf where they would give them balloons so that they could be there and they could hold the balloons and feel the vibrations and still be able to, you know, enjoy the show. Like, 
I've never heard of that for any other band. That is so fucking cool. But anyway, started this documentary. It's good. It's interesting. But I think in the second episode, they talk about 1970, putting out Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. And, uh, you know, they're talking to Joe Smith, who was the head of Warner Brothers at the time. And he's like, they, you know, they lost us all this fucking money. They were fucking crazy people. And uh, they went into the studio, they recorded Working Man's Dead, and then they showed up at Warner Brothers, and they were like, here, the album's done. And he said, cool, when are we going to listen to it? And they said, right now, and they fucking put on the album, and the first song that played was Casey Jones, and they start playing it in the documentary. And, uh, you know... Some of the music, some of it was a little trippy in the beginning, but then it starts playing Casey Jones, uh, you know, driving that train high on cocaine. And uh, I was like, this is the Grateful Dead? Like, this is like a folk rock band. Like, like it's just a standard four-minute, like, rock song, but it's, it's fucking groovy, sounds good. I was like, my mind was fucking blown. I was like, this is the Grateful Dead. Like, I think, I think I assumed that it sounded more like Pink Floyd, which I'm still not a fan of Pink Floyd. Doesn't do it for me. And I know that they jam and they get spacey and they're all this, that, and the other thing, but it just, it, I can't connect with it. And it's a little depressing. It's a little dark, a little too spacey for me. And I think I assumed that the Grateful Dead was like that. But then I hear Casey Jones and I was like, my mind was fucking blown. I could not believe it. And through talking about Working Man's Dead, I mean, they talked about Uncle John's band and they played a little clip from that. And I was like, this is one of the happiest sounding songs I've ever heard. A, B, it's a you know, like a folk song, which prior to this, like I already loved Bob Dylan, uh, Joe Pug, uh, Willie T. Taylor, like a bunch of folk artists. So to hear these songs from the Grateful Dead and be able to connect it to that, I was like, huh, guess I guess I better do a little more research into this. And uh, yeah, so that kind of that kind of started it off right there and I enjoyed the rest of the documentary but I I checked out Working Man's Dead and I uh, some of my favorite songs off that album are obviously Uncle John's band Casey Jones and then there's a song on there called Dire Wolf that I love Uh, but that started the whole thing and I started listening to that album and for some reason This was like beginning of spring, summer 2018. I also started getting interested in like outlaw country, like cowboy country. And I started listening to a lot of, uh, um, well, what really started it is my brother loves, loved Marty Robin or loved at least El Paso. I know that he loved El Paso and I had heard him sing it before and it just kind of like, cracked me up and 
you know, he was still in the army at that time. So obviously I missed my brother. And so that was a way to kind of connect to him a little bit. So I started checking out Marty Robbins and started diving down the rabbit hole of uh, cowboy country. And then eventually when I moved a little bit beyond Working Man's Dead, discovered Europe 72, I was like, holy shit, this isn't fucking psychedelic and spacey either. These are like rock songs. They're just, they were a rock band. Like, I don't, it sounds so stupid, but my mind was so blown. And the funny thing about Europe 72 is they had some outlaw country in rotation of their sets every night, which, you know, a little side note, the Grateful Dead didn't really make set lists. Usually they just improvise, but I think with the whole Europe 72 tour, because they were recording the album and they were trying to make a good product for Warner Brothers, they had more of uh, like a set of songs that they wanted to play. But they had some Outlaw Country in the rotation and they actually played El Paso by Marty Robbins. Um, They played uh, Mama Tried, which is a... Merle Haggard song I believe and then they played uh, Big River which is the Johnny Cash song Uh, so again that was just another point where I was like what this fucking band is playing Outlaw Country and it's just ironic that I started getting into Outlaw Country at the same time that I started listening to the Grateful Dead but I remember that summer I just fell in love with Europe 70 tour uh, 70 tour 70 Europe 72 that whole album and on Spotify I found like the complete recordings of the Europe 72 tour and I would just put it on uh, because you know I detail cars for a living and it passed a shit ton of time and I was just listening to just rock music you know what I mean like semi-classic rock music slash folk music and uh you know i really really started to get into it and that kind of that set off the whole thing and then my buddy that i worked with who was into the grateful dead started suggesting different live albums for me to check out and some of them were eh, some of them i really didn't like but uh after that i found closing of winterland which again is like the production on it sounds a lot better it was like a new year's eve show but just like they played phenomenally and uh i just loved that album and i think they did that uh new year's eve 78 to 79 um so i had this jump from 72 to 79 and the songs sound totally different like they were playing them in a different style they had started doing the drums in space segment of their show which is basically like they get out all these tribal drums and they you know make this musical landscape with percussion instruments because they have two drummers oh yeah for those of you who don't know the grateful dead has two drummers um so yeah i i fell in love with this other live album that had different versions of the songs. And then, you know, I started finding 
the songs within these albums that I enjoyed. So I would just Spotify search those songs and I would check out the different versions of the songs, you know, from 1970 to 1979 to 1986 to 1991. Um, And it's just cool to listen to the same song, but they're playing it totally different, like six different times, you know what I mean? Or at least different from decade to decade. And uh, that's what made me fall in love with, you know, some of my favorite songs are Tennessee Jed, uh, which my buddy that I worked with who likes ICP fucking hates that song. Um, He hates playing in the band more, but Tennessee Jed, uh, Brown Eyed Women, Scarlet Begonias, Fire on the Mountain, Bertha, uh, what other one? And then obviously, you know, Casey Jones, Uncle John's band, Ripple, um, you know, some of the hits. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and I mean, there were songs like Tennessee Jed, they never recorded in the studio. Like, they were going to record it in the studio, but then they got a new keyboard player and they went out on tour and they just never ended up recording studio versions of like Tennessee Jed and uh, and Brown Eyed Women. So all there is is just live versions, which I think is another cool, unique thing about the Grateful Dead. So, yeah, the, the folk and outlaw uh, country aspect to it really is what lit the fire. And then, uh, you know, I was already a big fan of jazz. I've talked about this before. Miles Davis, Dave Brubeck, Quartet, John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk, Bill Evans Trio. Like, the list goes on. I love jazz already. So I think once I started enjoying the Grateful Dead's music, I was able to make the transition to enjoying the improvisational parts of their live show so i enjoyed hearing the way that they could take you know uh, a bridge that was on an album and extend it into this whole thing and then you know you almost kind of forget what song you're listening to and then it just like goes right back into the song um and i just I thought that was so cool because, like, I always loved going to shows where, you know, they play a song and then they either have the note ring out or they do have, like, a little interlude thing and then the next song starts, you know what I mean? Because, like, I grew up listening to Blink-182 and it was like, play song, thank you, make a joke, play next song, and it was like, start, stop, start, stop. So to hear a fluid performance... um, you know, I could appreciate that. And then obviously, uh, the determination that they had, uh, resonates with me because that's the thing about, you know, my career in music and the, the backseaters specifically is, I mean, we didn't, there's not one moment where we had like huge spikes of, new fans and popularity or whatever it's been a it's been kind of a slow process but uh 
Yeah, I mean, I I have that determination for making music and making a career in music. And, uh, you know, just their fun, don't-give-a-fuck aspect of them mixed with the determination, like, I thoroughly enjoyed that because that resonated. Both those things resonated with me. Is like, I love having fun playing music. I'm passionate about it, but I'm also determined to be a fucking rock star. So that resonated an extreme amount with me. And, uh, you know, that, that just became another reason that I love the grateful dead. And, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking about this when I was making the notes for this episode as they kind of had like a like a Forrest Gump ideology. You know what I mean? And what I mean by that, I've kind of come up with this this little idea that's like the the Forrest Gump complex because uh you know, those of you who have seen Forrest Gump for some of you that haven't, you know, he basically just takes every opportunity that's offered to him and just kind of goes through life like that, you know, like he, uh, I'm trying to think where to start with this, but basically he's in college, he's playing football and somebody hands him a leaflet to join the army. He goes off to Vietnam and, you know, fights in the war and then, you know, meets, Bubba, his, uh, his homie in the war. And he asks him if he wants to join his shrimping business and he just goes, okay. And then he gets out of the army, starts the shrimping business. Uh, and then there's even a part where he says something like, yeah, some man asked me to invest in his fruit company. It was called Apple. And now I got all this fucking money. Um, so yeah, the the Grateful Dead just kind of had that Forrest Gump ideology where they were offered shit and they just they went with it whether it was Woodstock or you know, a European tour. Um I think Egypt was more of uh I think they did that on their own volition cuz they really wanted to play uh at the pyramids in Egypt, which is another just like cool fact about the Grateful Dead like they played underneath the pyramids you know um but yeah having an ice cream flavor just like they didn't uh you know they didn't resist they didn't think they were hot shots and they weren't you know so rigid they kind of just went with the flow took opportunities and it worked out well for them you know so I've always kind of had a lot of respect for that that Forrest Gump uh style if you will um but yeah like like I kind of said too they they just had like a lack of ego you know what I mean they weren't rock stars and I know this is kind of antithetical to the whole Oasis episode that I did because like I do have some respect for their ego you know what I mean they came from nothing believe they were the biggest band in the world and they became the biggest band in the world but i also respect the aspect of 
the Grateful Dead and how they didn't have an ego. They didn't think they were better than anybody else. And honestly, it didn't seem like they were concerned with anybody else. You know, they weren't trying to, um, they weren't like, oh, here's the Beatles are successful. Let's be like them or let's be better than them. Like they weren't concerned with being better than anybody. The only thing they were concerned with was having fun and making the music they wanted to make. And that's not to say like that they didn't believe in themselves. Like they believed in themselves as a band, as musicians and, you know, obviously worked their asses off and became successful, but there was no malicious intent behind it. And there wasn't, and you know, people like to say that acid kills your ego And I guess it did for them because they just, they were hyper driven on their own shit. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically the list of everything I love about the Grateful Dead and why people love them, what they did right. And, uh, yeah, I just want to rehash on the things that are applicable today for those of you who have made it this far. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate you. I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, But the last thing I'm going to say, the things that are applicable today, the bands and artists can, um, you know, take to their own career is the determination, the, uh, you know, just keep going at it. Just keep working, keep trying to write the best songs, keep promoting and working your fucking ass off another thing that applies is practicing practice you know it's the most fucking generic cliche saying in the world but practice makes perfect practice makes connectedness and if you're playing with your band multiple times a week you're gonna get fucking tight and you're gonna end up making your songs the best that they can be because you're all in a room playing together and I think that's super important Um, just as well as practicing by yourself you know what I mean if you and that's the thing is like I want to tell all of you who want to be successful and all of you who want to be artists to practice every fucking day but if you're not that passionate about it then don't fucking do it but it pays if you practice every day and you're open and you're learning you're constantly learning you're only going to get better, you know? So practice, be down for anything, especially if you're an improvisation band and your show's different every night, play out as much as possible when COVID is over. I know that shit's a little sticky right now, but when everything comes back, venues come back and, uh, you know, the world comes back or whatever, play, play out every chance you can get because the thing is if you do that and you're playing out all the time you're playing shows all the time not only are you going to perfect your skill your craft whatever but the more you play out the more people are going to see you and yeah maybe your friends won't come to every single show and see every single performance but if you're playing with other artists there's at least going to be one other person in the room that might enjoy your band or your music and tell their friends about it. 
You know what I mean? Like I am a big proponent of playing every show you're offered, you know? And I know that it doesn't seem like it with the backseaters and whatnot. Um, you know, because we were picking and choosing shows that we were playing and whatever, but, um, a, I love playing shows and I know some of the other guys, uh, like to play other shows that may have more opportunity or might be bigger or, uh, you know, might make more sense, but I love playing shows. I could play every night, you know, and if there's one person there who enjoys the performance, why not? You know what I mean? The problem only arises when you have to sell tickets. You know what I mean? Like if you're playing at Moe's on a Friday, you know, you promote it, you sell a shit ton of tickets, like you're trying to sell as many tickets, but if you're playing a show like that, you know, following Saturday or even that following Friday sometimes, and you're playing at the marquee or the summit moon room and you have to sell tickets, you're just not going to sell, you know, as many tickets as you did to Moe's or whatever. So that's, that's the only reason you should, uh, you know, space out your shows and whatnot is if you have to sell tickets. But the thing about the Grateful Dead is I don't think they were actively trying to sell tickets. And, uh, you know, another thing that I didn't have written down, but I want to say is especially accept every opportunity you get for like a free show. You know what I mean? If someone's putting on a free show or your friends ask you to play a free show, just fucking do it because you're playing for people. You're playing a show. You're doing a service. You're doing what you love. So why the fuck not? Um, so, yeah, just be down for anything. Uh, another applicable thing is be unique. Write the music that you want to write. Play the music that you want to play. Because like I said, people can tell when you're not being genuine, when you're forcing it, when you're following some sort of algorithm to try and be famous. Like people can sense that and they will not connect with it. So just do the shit that you want to do. And, uh, you know, somebody's going to like it, I'm sure. Uh, but if you're unique and original, uh, not only will you enjoy it the most, but like people seeing you will also enjoy it more because they can tell you're enjoying it. And, uh, you know, if you're an artist and you love music, just love it, be passionate about it and have fun with it. And I know in this day and age, it's all about social media and Spotify playlists and, you know, fans, likes, follows, yada, yada, yada. But, um, you know, which, like I've said before, I know it's important. I know it's part of the game. Um, but just make sure you're still following the passion of it and still loving what you're doing because that's that's what's most important you know what I mean if you get too zeroed in on the promotion and the social media and all that shit and the marketing uh I feel like 
I mean, there's even been times for me, I'm going to be completely honest that it makes me resent doing the whole music thing altogether. And then I kind of fall off for a little bit because I'm like, I just need to fucking play music. Like that's it because I'm passionate about it. I fucking love it. Um, so yeah, social media is important and whatnot, but just make sure that you still love it, that you take the time to enjoy music so that, you know, cause when you enjoy it and you're making songs that you love, you're going to want to promote that music more. Whereas if you're phoning it in and you're making music that you're very meh about, you know what I mean? You're not going to promote it. You're not going to work that hard to get it into the eardrums of people around the world. So just make sure you love it and you're having fun. And, uh, you know, if you just make music cause you're trying to be famous and fuck you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I kind of meant it, but I kind of didn't mean it. But anyway, regardless, uh, determination, practice down for anything, play all shows unique, be original, love it, have fun. And I think that pretty much concludes, uh, this episode here. Uh, don't start a band podcast. This is the third episode of why them. If you haven't heard them already, make sure you listen to the intro. I kind of talked about everything I plan to do with this segment and some of the other episodes I plan to do. I did an episode on Oasis. This is the third episode of the why them segment on the grateful dead. If you've listened this far, you listen to the whole thing. Um, once again, thank you so much for listening to it. I know that it's just me talking to myself, talking into a microphone, but I appreciate the support. I appreciate the intrigue that you guys might have. And, uh, yeah, I really hope you enjoy this episode and hopefully I've maybe, uh, piqued your interest on the Grateful Dead and maybe you'll go check out Working Man's Dead or American Beauty um, you know song suggestions I'd say check out Uncle John's band Casey Jones Ripple Truckin uh, Tennessee Jed just to name a few but yeah thank you guys so much this is uh, third episode of Why Them Don't Start a Band podcast Grateful Dead Thank you.
Call me in the morning